Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 23. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward and according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the church. Thank you for Paul, who is so committed to the church, and especially its proper foundation and those who build on it. Pray that you'd be with Tom as he speaks. Be with us. Open our eyes and, and help us uh, not to think in terms of being so wise, but in terms of being children who take things from you simply. And, and even in the, when the world looks upon that as foolish, that you would give us your wisdom from above. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. As I was uh, pondering this, this great chapter, I couldn't help thinking crazy thoughts about the house that's just across the back alley from my and Debbie's house, the 
For many months, our neighbor has been engaged in a major remodel of, of that house. In fact, they haven't been there for months. Um, it's a complete redo of the ground floor and an addition of a second floor. And pretty much the only thing that's going to survive from the original structure is the foundation and the framing on the ground floor. Everything else has pretty much been gutted and redone. And it's been, it's been fascinating to watch uh, the, the progress and the process where you've got different crews of men who come in. Uh, you've got framers, you've got uh, window installers, plumbers and electricians, uh, insulation and drywall contractors, brick masons, painters. And all of those crews are following a design that was laid out by the owner in, in uh, his collaboration with an architect that he hired so that the result will be what the owner intended, right? That's how construction projects work when they go rightly. The crazy thought I had was this. What if instead of hiring skilled and experienced contractors, the owner had just, had just handed the design and the building materials to a group of infants? How many of you would want to live in what would end up being built on that foundation? Even if you could magically overcome the physical and the mental limitations inherent in being babies, <laughs> We know that the words team and infants don't belong in the same sentence, so you can't have a team of infants building anything, right? The, the least cooperative human beings in the world are babies. And I think it was, it's fascinating to me to, as Bob prayed to, to open this time when he talked about, about us having childlike simplicity in our faith. Uh, and, and recognizing that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God and the wisdom of God is actually very straightforward and revealed in His Word. But there is a childishness that does not belong in the life of the believer. And that's the childishness that these Corinthian saints uh, were characterized by. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3... Paul presents a contrast, in effect. One side of that, on one side of that contrast is what happens when Christians who are stuck in spiritual infancy attempt to do the farming and the building that God has commissioned His church to do. On the other side of that contrast is what happens when spiritually mature believers work together to fulfill that same commission or assignment. Now, the chapter begins with a shaming rebuke that is directed by Paul not to unbelievers, but to redeemed saints of God. The, the same saints that are addressed throughout this whole book. The same saints that Paul in the first chapter very boldly declared to be redeemed of God. To, to be destined to, to uh, an eternity with, with God. Paul never ever declares anyone to be, quote, in Christ if that person has not in fact come to faith in Jesus Christ and, and been sealed by the Holy Spirit, destined to spend eternity in the presence of God. If you want to know what Paul means by that phrase, in Christ, I highly recommend that you camp out for a while in Ephesians chapter 1. 
And you'll get a really strong taste of what it means to have received the unfathomable riches of Christ to be in Christ Jesus. Here in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul addresses the saints in Corinth as infants in Christ. He says they are walking like mere men. And I like the way the, the old 1901 American Standard Version renders that last phrase. It says that they walk after the manner of men. After the manner of men. The Corinthian believers were, by and large, not living their daily lives in a way that, that reflected their true identity as the children of God. They were, they were walking in a way that contradicted that identity. Uh, and yet Paul affirms that they are in Christ. They are babies in Christ. Notice he does not say, I couldn't speak to some of you as to spiritual men. He, he says to the whole local church in Corinth, brethren, I could not speak to y'all, plural, as to spiritual men, but as to babies in Christ. The church at Corinth was a mess. And as we progress through this book, we will see that the, that the sins and the failures that characterized the church at Corinth were not different than the sins and failures that characterize many local churches today. The word that's translated infants here can refer to young children and not necessarily to babies. But Paul makes it clear in verse 2 that these saints are babies. He says, I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able. And the, 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 the phrase not yet and even now tell us that he fully expected that by now this group of Christians would have grown to a level of maturity that would have enabled them, would have prepared them to receive the meat of the Word, the solid things of, of, of God. But they weren't there. And the problem is not that they were so new in the faith that they haven't had time to, to mature. They're past that time. They just aren't growing up. Paul tells us he knows, and this is important, he tells us how he knows that they are still fleshly and stunningly immature. He knows because of the jealousy and strife that is dividing them against one another. That's where the first rebuke of Paul against this church started in the first chapter with division. And he says, that's how I know your babies is by the division that exists among you. In verse 4, he goes back to what he said in chapter 1 about the man-centered factions, schisms that were springing up among the saints at Corinth. He says in verse 4, chapter 3, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? He just said you're, you're walking, you're not walking like spiritual men, you're walking like babies. And this is no small, no small point, beloved. If we want to understand and respond rightly to the rebuke that Paul sets in, forth in this chapter, we have to get this. When he explicitly identifies the characteristic of these believers that 
convinced him that they are not spiritual men, but are fleshly men, infants in Christ, he points to just one proof. And that proof is the man-centered divisions that exist among them. As we work through this book, we're going to see Paul rebuke this same church for a whole bunch of different failures. But the failure that he zeroes in on right here, the failure that points out where these Christians stand in their maturity, is the divisions that they have created within God's church. In chapter 1, Paul already indicted these same saints for dividing the church into these cliques, opposing groups formed around allegiances to certain prominent men. One says, I am of Paul. Another says, I am of Apollos. Another, I am of Peter. Some say, I am of Jesus. Paul blasts their reasons in chapter 1 for those divisions as altogether unworthy of even the slightest slightest division between Christians. Now in chapter 3, he points to such man-centered divisions as proof that all who participate in them are not spiritual, but are fleshly and infantile. Now, it's also important to note that it wasn't actually Paul or Apollos or Peter who were inciting this jealousy and strife. The sheep were creating divisions in the names of God's faithful shepherds. Divisions that didn't actually exist at the level of, of those men that they're creating factions uh, in allegiance to. Now, do you think that we at CBC are exempt from such fleshly and destructive division? Brothers and sisters, we are in the thick middle right now of some of the most volatile flashpoints that the church in our age has faced. We live in a time in which it is exceedingly easy to start creating sides within the church. To start creating divisions that God would never create in His spiritual household. Divisions that will only exist if we're ignoring the powerful exhortation that Paul sets before us right here. If we ignore the forceful warnings in this passage, and if we choose up sides over non-essential matters of practice or belief, we will be proving ourselves to be fleshly and not spiritual, not spiritual, to be babies and not mature, not godly in our following of Jesus. Now I'll come back to that later, but first, We need to examine what Paul declares in verses 5 through 17 about the role of men in the work of God. The role of men and women in the work of God. In verses 5 to 17, Paul presents two vivid analogies. First, that of a field. And then secondly, that of a building. At first glance, I thought that Paul was mixing his metaphors, that Both of those metaphors apply to the same thing. And at one level they do. They're both talking about the church. But Paul uses the analogy of the field to talk specifically about how God populates the church. How God saves sinners and makes them part of Christ's church. And then he uses the analogy of the building to talk about the part that every saint 
plays in the growth and the strength and the health of the church that God has created and is still populating through His harvest and His field. All right, so the field pictures how how people come to be members of God's household and the building pictures the household. First, Paul explains man's role in God's field. He continues with the rebuke against man-centered divisions in the church. And he asks, he asks, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And then, of course, he answers his own question. He says, servants. Servants of God, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each. He's saying that those who brought the gospel to these Corinthians were merely servants of God. It was through them, not because of them or by them, that these men and women and children came to faith in Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 5, Paul says that even the opportunity for for men like Apollos and Paul and Peter to, to bring the gospel to others is orchestrated and controlled by God. It's all God's doing. Paul, Peter, Apollos, they are just, and, and many others were just agents, just instruments of the one who actually does all the saving. And we talked about this earlier in the book, but when God repeats himself, we're supposed to pay attention. We should all have this very firmly in mind day by day as we carry out God's commission for His church. It is not our skillful presentation. It's not our brilliant method. It's not our perfect tract that ushers people out of the darkness of sin and into the marvelous light of eternal union with Christ. It is the Holy Spirit working through the word of the cross, the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. A simple message. A message that a child can understand if the Holy Spirit is working in the heart of that child. In verse 7, Paul says, So neither neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Do you see how absolute the categories are here? There's no blurring of roles at all. Neither of those workers is anything. When it comes to the miraculous transformation of the soul of a, in the soul of a, a man or woman or child from unbelief to belief in Christ, you and I are nothing. We don't cause faith. We don't give life to the dead. We just plant and water as servants Agents of God while He does all the saving. It's not a small issue. (laughs) And the role of every servant of God is as just part of a team effort. This is why babies aren't very good at it. God may use you to plant a seed in the heart of a lost soul through your proclamation of the good news. Then weeks or months or maybe even years later, He may use another child of His to water that seed. And then he may use yet another servant of God to finally reap the harvest when that seed that he planted through you finally comes to fruition. Don't be disappointed if you don't get to see the harvest. I know so many Christians who measure their effectiveness in evangelism based on how many people they get to see come to faith in Christ. (laughs) 
When you do that, you're using the wrong metric. And you're going to come to the wrong conclusion about your own usefulness to God. See, God does this. He, He saves human beings through the church. Through the church. And if He wants to use the whole church to save one human being, that's His business. That should be perfectly fine with us. Whether you get to see the harvest or not, just keep proclaiming the word of the cross in love and adorn that proclamation with a life that matches up with it. And that will be God's measure of your success in evangelism. In fact, that will be the measure that determines your reward on the last day when it comes to that task. In in verse 8, Paul says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now I love that. He who plants and he who waters are one. He's not saying they are they are divided. He's saying they're united. But they're not the same person. But the task is one task. And the Lord of the harvest is one is one Lord. All right. After presenting the analogy of the field to picture how God brings dead men to eternal life through faith in Jesus, Paul then raises a second analogy, and that that is that of a building. In verse 9, he says, for we are God's, all of us together, are God's fellow workers. That doesn't mean that God is our peer. It means we are peers to one another as fellow workers in the work of God. He says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. That verse is a hinge between the two analogies. After verse 9, there's no more mention of the field. It's just the building. In verse 10, Paul says that according to the grace of God that was given to him, it always traces back to that. It's God's doing. According to the grace of God given to him, he laid a foundation. And then he immediately, without skipping a beat, makes makes sure that we know the foundation didn't come from him. He says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And the building that is constructed on that one foundation is God's church. And here's how the division of labor works, according to Paul. God already laid the foundation. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, you see that that foundation was laid through the apostles and prophets. That foundation was laid through the foretelling and the spread of the Word of God. That's how the foundation was laid. The, the Word of the cross. Okay. In Ephesians 2, Paul uses the same analogy of a building. He tells his audience in Ephesus that was also made of mostly Gentiles who'd come to faith in Jesus, that Jesus destroyed the dividing wall between Gentiles and Jews and He made the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man in Jesus. And then in verses 19-22, to here's what He says. Listen for the elements in this passage that are common in common with what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 3. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Please remember that wording. You are of God's household. 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, all the yous in that passage are plural. All of them. All of the yous in 1 Corinthians 3 are plural. All of them. We all are being built together into one dwelling place of God. Just one. Not a bunch. Just one. And we all are now being used as instruments, tools in the hands of God as He accomplishes that marvelous construction project. Building on one on the one foundation whose cornerstone is Christ. Now, you and I might be happy to leave the task of building the church on the shoulders of men like Paul and Peter and Apollos while we remain content to be bricks in God's building and not construction workers. But that's not how this plays out. In Ephesians 2, and very explicitly in Ephesians chapter 4, the same Apostle Paul makes it clear that we are both. We're bricks in the building, and we are fellow workers together with one another in the building up of God's household. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Listen to this. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So how many construction workers are there? There's a bunch. It's all of us, beloved. All of us. Every single part of the body of Christ has a role in building up the household of God. This isn't something you pay someone to do so that you can watch them do it. This is something, and this is one of the things I love about CBC, is that we, we believe we are devoted to the, to the very simple reality that we're all, we are all part of the priesthood of, of the saints. We are all workers in God's, in God's agenda and, and in God's building. Here in 1 Corinthians 3, what we build with, what we build with determines the quality of our work. The list of building materials in verse 12 proceeds from most valuable to least valuable. There's three really valuable components and three not-so-valuable components. It's very interesting that the three that aren't valuable are also flammable. All right. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. In the end, God is going to do the quality control. He will test the quality of each man's work by testing what that man has built with on the foundation of Christ, but not till the end of the process. Verses 13 through 15 tell us how the test works. If any man's work which he has built upon the foundation of Christ remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. 
Throughout the Bible, both Testaments, our God is described as a consuming fire. And the holy fire of God does different things in different passages. When God sends His fire to destroy, it destroys. When He sends His fire to refine, it removes what is undesirable and it preserves and purifies what is desirable. And that is a strong element in this passage, but this passage is not talking about God's ongoing work of sanctification, of refining in each believer's life. It is talking about the judgment, that the fire is applied as the judgment of every believer's work, judgment by Christ on the last day. God's holy fire will test the quality of each man's work, and the quality will be measured by the durability of the building materials that we that we used. Now verse 15 makes it very clear that this is not about our eternal destiny. I, I can't I can't emphasize that point enough. In John 5:24 Jesus said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me, believes the testimony of the Father to the Son, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is already crossed over out of death into life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Over and over and over, the Word of God makes it clear that when you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your eternal destiny is settled. You're not going to be judged to determine if you're qualified for heaven because you're not! You could never be. Your only qualification for heaven, will the only one you will ever have is the righteousness of Christ applied to you that you didn't deserve. It's not your righteousness. He paid the debt of your sin when He died on the cross. If you've trusted in Him, His righteousness covers you forever. When I've been standing in in heaven 10,000 years, it will still and only be the righteousness of Christ that qualifies me to be there. And I have that right now. I'll never deserve it, but I have it right now. I've said this before, and some of my Christian friends think I'm nuts, but I got saved at 16, and I've never doubted my salvation one single second in 46 years. And the only reason I haven't doubted it is because I didn't have anything to do with it. It's, it's God's doing. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. For by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I got nothing to boast about. I got nothing to hang my hat on except Christ. Sorry, I didn't mean to go there, but can't help it. <laughs> All right. The reward will be determined by whether the work we've done remains or burns up when God tests it with fire. And you know, here's what it always blows my mind. Why would I get a reward for, for a construction project that is all God's doing? I'm just, I'm just an instrument. Why give the instrument a reward? That's grace. That's, that's marvelous. That, that, you know, Jesus says we share in His glory. How in the world would I ever share in His glory? Well, He says I will. He said, when he talks about the, in the parable of the talents of the good and faithful servant, he says, enter into the joy of your master. Why would I ever be able to enter into the joy of Jesus? It's all grace. 
If we're going to rightly understand what Paul is saying in this passage, it's very, very important that we get this simple truth. This passage is not fundamentally about how you or I serve individuals in the church. It's about how every individual saint contributes to the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. It's about the singular building up the plural. It's about the individual building up the corporate. And if you don't understand why it would be important for me to point that out, please stay with me because this is mission critical stuff, beloved. And when we miss this truth, we miss our mission. Paul's back and forth use here of singular and plural pronouns is very telling. He says that the test that's coming from the hand of God will be applied to the work of each individual Christian. I count 14 times in verses 12 to 23 in which Paul speaks of each man in the singular. Each individual Christian in the singular. Each man, every man, he, him. 14 times. But without exception, the work to which God calls each individual Christian is the building up of one entity. And that's the church. Every man builds on one foundation, Christ. Every man builds, every man contributes to the building up of the one dwelling place of God, the one household of God, the one church. Paul's talking about the activity of individuals that either builds up or tears down the corporate entity which is the church of Jesus Christ. Verses 16 and 17, do you all, do y'all not know, let me be a Texan here, that y'all are a temple, singular, of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what y'all are. The temple of God, the one temple of God is holy, and that's what y'all are together. Are we paying attention here? Paul can't be any clearer. What will be tested by the God in the end is what every single one of us has done either to tear up or to, or tear down or to build up the church. And the church is us together. And I want to be real clear about this next point. The acid test of whether you and I are getting this right is seen in the context of the local church. If all you and I have to do, if we have a disagreement with someone in this local body to resolve the conflict is just go to another church, You know what that does with all of the exhortations in this passage and all of the exhortations in all of the one another passages in the New Testament? It makes them completely meaningless. It means we don't have to work anything out with each other. These admonitions, these strong exhortations apply to what we do in the local body, beloved. Here in the buckle of the Bible belt, it is ridiculously easy to bounce from one local church to another. But everything that the New Testament says about our obligation to and our assignment in the church of Jesus Christ assumes that we will remain devoted to the local body in which God has placed us. It doesn't mean Christians never get to move from one church to another. If if for the sake of a job or because of family situations or whatever, 
But it absolutely does mean, it absolutely does mean that the test of your devotion and my devotion to the bride of Christ is measured by how we build up or tear down the community of saints in which God has put us. We don't get to walk away when things are hard. How do we know before that fiery test comes around if we're building with flammable trash or durable treasure on the foundation of Christ? Well, if we're paying attention to this passage, the surest way to build with trash is for us to serve the goals of individuals or groups within the church instead of building up the church. I'm not saying at all that we're not supposed to love and serve our individual brothers and sisters and families. I'm saying that that service must have as its goal the building up of the body. As soon as we take our eyes off of that indispensable assignment, we get this wrong. The destructive activity that results when we do that is very much akin to what happens when the parents of a married man or woman make it their goal to protect what they perceive to be the well-being of their child instead of to protect and strengthen the well-being of their child's marriage. And I see that happen a lot. Are you with me? In a group this size, there are enough in-law horror stories that I shouldn't need to go any further with that little comparison for you all to know what I'm talking about. Beloved, at the very top of God's list of what is good for the body of Christ is the unity of the body of Christ. That's the first place Paul went when he started exhorting the Corinthians. That's the first place Paul went when he started exhorting the Ephesians. And that's where Paul starts and ends this chapter. Listen to verses 21 to 23. 1 Corinthians 3, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to y'all. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to y'all. And y'all belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Beloved, God intends to use everything on this earth to build up His spiritual household so that we together will be mighty in advancing His kingdom on earth. The unity of His body is indispensable to the mission of His body. Let me try to wrap this up and, and bring it home some, perhaps a little painfully. There is clearly such a thing in the Bible as necessary division. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 that He came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. There can be no unity in untruth. Sharp division must and will exist between the redeemed saints of God and those who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, those who oppose any doctrine or practice that God's Word requires. If someone comes into our midst who demands something that God has clearly forbidden in His Word or forbids what God has clearly demanded in His Word regarding any teaching or any practice, we, meaning the elders and you guys, must stand firm on the Word of God, even if that results in 
very painful conflict. There is such a thing as necessary division. But friends, what marked the Corinthians out as spiritual babies was not necessary division. It was needless, pointless, useless division. It was the ease with which they created man-centered, pointless factions in the body of Christ. When we're dealing with an issue about which God has not given clear command in His Word, that puts us into the realm of matters of personal conscience and personal conviction. And no matter how strongly any one of us or any group of us holds such convictions, we cannot allow disagreement over those kinds of things to create division within God's household. We cannot. If we as elders change a policy or a practice that affects the whole body, the whole community of saints at CBC, in order to accommodate the very strong conviction of one or two or even several believers at CBC, knowing that that change will likely provoke division in the body, that's bad leadership. And even if you're the one with that strong conviction, you should not want that kind of change. One dear brother said to me this week that he deeply longs to see an end to the undercurrent of what he insightfully called whispered discontent that has crept into this church in recent months. I have that same longing, beloved. We must not miss the connection between being good construction workers in God's building and being fiercely, fiercely devoted to the unity of God's household. If the elders of this church stopped being vigilant against every seed of division between elders, then right now would be a huge opportunity for Satan to tear this church apart, starting with its under-shepherds. God hit me over the head with this as I prayerfully consider this passage. And I mean, when I say hit me over the head with this, I mean, he, t- he, he used this passage to say to me, Tom, you need to, you need to change what you're doing. It would be so very easy for me to grab a couple of other elders who lean in my direction on any of the polarizing matters that the church is facing right now, not just this church, and to take up sides against the other elders. If I or any other elder did that, it would be so easy for others in this body to take sides with that elder or some subset of the elders who lean their way on that same hot-button issue and then to round up others in the body and circle the wagons for their cause. Creating sharper and sharper division within their little group or their big group. Division between them and anyone else at CBC who disagrees with them. One CBCer might zealously say, I am of the fearless CBCers who are ready to ditch the masks and get back to real face-to-face fellowship and worship. Another CBCer might say, oh, I am of the compassionate CBCers who are willing not to be able to see each other's faces and to sing with the muting effect of masks in order to care for those who are more vulnerable or who might easily take the virus back to other people who are more vulnerable. Some might say if the rest of the elders of this church won't get on board with the strong convictions of those who share my views on this matter, we could just go start another church. 
I'm thankful that we haven't seen those the tensions over such issues, issues get that to that point yet. But that's cause for vigilance, not for complacency. Beloved, God has very good reasons for not giving us clear command about every decision that has to be made affecting the local body at CBC. Turning everything that you or I feel strongly about into a moral imperative that must be imposed on the whole church is guaranteed to divide God's church rather than to build it up. And I'm pointing the finger at myself. I have a tendency to take every one of my strong convictions and turn it into a moral imperative that should be imposed on the whole church. That's wrong. That's not the assignment. That's not your assignment. How about if we all take this approach instead, beloved? I'm almost done. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, you all are of God's household. So instead of saying, I am of this group within the church, or another saying, I'm of this other group within the church, how about if, how about if every single one of us says this? By God's gracious doing alone, I am of the body of Christ, the spiritual household of God. And the only man to whom I will vow my allegiance is Jesus. And the only group that I will serve is God's church, the whole church. I will joyfully set aside every personal preference and the preference of any other person or group within the body in order to diligently guard the oneness that God has so miraculously created in His household. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Because that oneness that God commands all of us to guard is so much more important to Him than whether or not we wear masks when we come together to worship Him. And please hear me, I'm not coming down on either side of that. That's been the problem. I have eight elders and you have nine. And beloved, I believe with all my heart that God leads me through the the collective wisdom that He graciously gives to those other eight men. And if, if it's ever an issue on which God has not clearly, clearly, clearly declared that it has to go this way or that, it is my, it is my obligation, it is my calling from God to follow the lead of those other eight men if I happen to disagree with them. That's how this is supposed to work. I will joyfully set aside even my strong convictions if God has, has not given clear command on the matter of hand, and I will joyfully cast aside my judgment of my brothers' and sisters' motives that I'm not qualified to judge. That's in the next chapter. And I will do so, I will cast aside that judgment in order to build up the dwelling place of God so that, just like he says, we will act as one dwelling place of God. The ultimate test of our work won't happen until Jesus returns to claim His own. On that day, the quality of every single Christian's work will be made clear. Until then, we must exalt Christ. And not men, certainly not ourselves. And we must devoutly and vigilantly vigilantly set aside every unworthy division to preserve the unity of God's temple, which we all 
are together. Dear Father, we ask You to lovingly root out every seed of division in this body and to make us excellent fellow workers for the building up of Your dwelling place on earth, Your church. We want to get this right, Father. But we are utterly dependent on Your work in us both to will and to work for Your good pleasure. And You have promised that good work. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.